Hello, hello, and welcome to another podcast episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, anxiety. Uh, Today, I'm talking about the link between anxiety and pathological demand avoidance, PDA. For some people, this might be a new thing that they've never even heard about. PDA was actually first identified in the 80s. It wasn't officially called PDA until mid 2000. So like 2007, I think was the actual year in the UK. I first saw my first PDA kiddo in 2009. So it's relatively new, but it's, you know, been around for over a decade now. Um, But like I said, it might be new to you. So just in case you've never heard of it, I'm going to go over it quite quickly here. Um, It's not recognized as a separate diagnosis. We have our sort of diagnostic manual for those of you who aren't um, mental health professionals, but it's considered a pervasive of developmental disorder, and it's becoming more and more recognized as a distinct behavioral profile within the autism spectrum. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it today, since I was talking about comorbidities between autism and anxiety in the past couple of weeks. Um, This is actually a really controversial topic. There's a lot of people who support this idea of PDA as its own distinct behavioral profile, like I said, within the autism spectrum. However, there still isn't a lot of empirical evidence to support this, you know, sort of as a separate diagnosis. And there's so many pieces that are overlapping autism, as you'll see as I talk about it. Um, So between autism, but also other diagnoses like anxiety. So on the other side of things, some argue that PDA, it isn't a separate thing. It's just a subcategory of autism or a subcategory of autism. So, you know, well, with a lot of things, there's a lot of research that we need um, and a lot more that especially just around how are we defining PDA, but there are some core characteristics that we can talk about. And so that's what I'm going to talk about for today. And then we'll get into the treatment things for next time. So really, when we look at the clinical term of PDA, it's essentially kiddos who have to have They just have this absolute control of their environment. And so they're avoiding everyday demands, everyday expectations, everyday requests from other people. We see that overlap with autism because these kiddos have not only just that trouble with sort of the demand piece, but really it's the trouble with the social communication and the interaction. So they might have difficulty understanding social cues, understanding the nonverbal communication, facial expressions or body language or tone of voice. Um, They might have other difficulties that we see common with our autistic kiddos, like initiating conversations, maintaining conversations, building friendships. So a lot of these kiddos have that social communication challenge and All of that can lead to social isolation and exclusion, which can just make anxiety and stress worse. So I'll be talking about the link with anxiety in a second. These these kiddos also have trouble thinking flexibly. So just like our autistic kiddos, they have a very, very um, narrow range of interests. They can have really rigid routines. They could have difficulty transitioning or adapting to new situations. Um, they might obsess over a particular topic or a particular activity, and that can interfere with their ability to engage in other activities and in their friendships and social interactions. Now, when we look at some of the core aspects of PDA, like I said, it's controversial. And so it causes some arguments, again, between the different camps. So some would argue that PDA is more behavioral in nature, that demand avoidance, where others would say it's really more about anxiety. 
But when we look at its core, it really is this anxiety-driven need for control and autonomy. I don't really love the PDA, the pathological piece. Um, Tomlin Wilding developed a term for PDA, pervasive drive for autonomy. This PDA definition is way less judgy than the pathological piece, right? The pathological demand avoidance. And I know Elizabeth Newson, who coined the, the term PDA anyways, does regret putting in that pathological. So I love this pervasive drive for autonomy, really, because, you know, what kid would ever want to be known as pathological? It just sort of rips out my heartstrings a little bit. It's so stigmatizing. And if we think of kiddos as pathological, there's just the switch in the brain. As much as we don't want to be biased, I mean, we mental health professionals wouldn't be, but it's just really hard for educators and, and parents and family and other people, even subconsciously, right? They're going to get their guard up a little bit right? Even though these kiddos need more love, more support, more patience from us, but that word pathological, you know, it just triggers our defense mechanisms already. So it's meant to imply that that avoidance is so extreme. It's so irrational. It causes such significant impairment in their functioning, which is important to distinguish, but still nonetheless, right? It's just looking at that term and terminology, but it is important because all kiddos push back against demands, right? All kiddos don't want to pick up dog poo, right? Um, All kiddos have times where they want to avoid certain demands. But when we're looking at this pathological, I get that we need it to differentiate the ones that are really extreme, but we still kind of have that negative bias towards it. Um, And when we talk about the pervasive drive for autonomy, you know, we're just shifting our mindset to, you know, not focusing on what we don't want, what we want less of. So that demand avoidance, which is never really going to get us anywhere anyway, right? Because we're focusing on don't do this, don't do that. The brain is just going to automatically do this, do that. (laughs) It's it's all we're ever going to see if we're only ever focusing on the things that we don't want. And we don't really have a lot of control over that either, right? There's so many things that could be contributing to it. So just shifting that mindset can be really helpful. And the strive for autonomy, it really hits home because I think it's so important for a lot of these kiddos anyway, when we're looking at resilience, because we want them to have autonomy. We just want them to drive for it in appropriate ways that aren't impairing, right? And I think that that's important, especially when we're looking at anxiety, they're not feeling very autonomous in the first place. And so we can actually use this to our advantage. So just having a bit of a mind shift there can be really helpful because I'm always talking about the flip side of traits, right? If we see something problematic in kiddos, especially our neurodivergent kiddos, and this is true for our PDA kiddos because they're neurodivergent as well, looking at those traits, oftentimes, you know, they might be frustrating to us, but they might be their strengths. Right. And so we we hear parents saying they're so stubborn, but they're so steadfast in what's important to them. We see a lot of these kiddos grow up to be so committed to justice and fairness. It can really help career paths. You know, I don't know about you, but I've worked with so many adults who are so tenacious in in, in their roles as leaders in social justice movements, um, people who pursue their education in those movements as well. Um, yeah, they can be fiercely independent. They can be 
really creative, really imaginative, really empathetic, really caring. And so we want to make sure we're focusing on the strengths because it's so easy to go PDA, automatic, negative connotation. And we're just looking at the, you know, the, the challenges ahead when we're dealing with these kiddos. And so for me, it's not about the label. If you follow me, you know that I take a trans diagnostic approach, meaning I take a very holistic approach. I'm looking at the whole kiddo in their entire context, right? Um, I'm considering their patterns of strengths, right? Um, flip side, those problems that we might see on their head, what is the strength underlying there, but what are the differences, right? Rather than focusing on individual symptoms, I, I, I know, you know, we don't want to pathologize our kids, another label, right? So when I, I, I'm really hesitant with the PDA, I know that those kiddos who have that diagnosis and families who have that diagnosis are really holding on to them to really, um, I think a lot of it is to maybe not justify, but I think it just helps parents validate their experiences, that they have a kiddo who does have this extreme sort of avoidance of demands, but we got to understand it's an anxiety-driven need, right? And so that's really important to think about in our neurodivergent kiddos. So we want to make sure we're not getting caught up in labels, Right. We actually want to help each child and each family that that we're seeing that they need help with. So I, I just wanted to kind of put that little plug in there. It's not about the label as much as how are we going to support these kiddos? But the label can be helpful, like I said, with validating, giving that relief. But where do we go from here? When we're looking at the diagnosis, as with any diagnosis, PDA is very complex. And like I said, it's not an official diagnosis that we see recognized within our diagnostic manual. Um, but regardless, we want to look at it. We need to do a comprehensive assessment. Obviously, that's beyond the scope of this episode. But if you're a professional who wants to learn more, reach out. I'm happy to consult about that comprehensive assessment when we're looking at PDA. And I'm actually in including that piece because it's a huge part of the autistic profile in my training that's coming up. Um, my March is sold out, but my June training, um, and I'll have a wait list as well for the fall training, looking at differential diagnosis for autism and comorbidities. And so PDA is going to be part of that as well. But you know, when we're looking at things, I mean, even just like autism, a lot of people are getting misdiagnosed with other things, and especially our PDA kiddos, other things like borderline personality personality disorder or psychosis, right? Um, like autism, there's a lot of comorbidities, including ADHD. And we do need to consider the pervasiveness too. It doesn't all of the sudden show up, right? Just we had a car accident, now all of the sudden, right? It's got to have always sort of been there in some form. Um, it doesn't always just show up in specific situations. Like it's just when they put on socks, for example, it's not about the situation. Okay. And I think that that's really important because I've had families coming and talking to me about PDA a lot, quite significantly. And it's about maybe going to school. That's a big one. Or maybe it's about eating breakfast, for example, but that's, it's, it's not about eating breakfast. It's not about going to school. Those are their own things. It's about the demand to go to school, the demand to eat breakfast because they have this need for autonomy. And so oftentimes it doesn't even really make sense. And sometimes they can do it. And sometimes they can't, they'll easily go and eat their breakfast. But if it's the demand that they're <gasps> getting all anxious about, then all of a sudden they can't eat breakfast. Um, 
So those are some things to think about. It's not PDA if they can warm up to the situation once they get more comfortable with it, right? So sometimes kids will be like, no, 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 no. And then they do it and they're like, oh, that was actually pretty good. Um, it actually becomes harder for them the more routine it becomes. So I think that that's really important to think about. So let's dig into this. I, I think, you know, actually, as I talk about it, it can be helpful. So let's talk about how PDA can show up. Um, I always need to give the disclaimer that it can show up so differently from one kiddo to the next, just like anxiety. We've got our internalizers. They're increasing their own distress. That avoidance might look really subtle. It might look really passive. So I just forgot what the instruction was and now I'm distracted doing something else. So it could be passive like that versus our externalizers. They're increasing everybody else's distress, right? Because they're engaging in these really big avoidance sort of behaviors. So however it shows up, the most prominent things that we see is that persistent avoidance of everyday demands and expectations because that anxiety that comes up whenever they're faced with that demand is so big and it's so overwhelming. And I'm not talking about any demand, right? The focus is really on those ordinary everyday demands of living life, right? Getting dressed, putting underwear on, putting socks on, going to the bathroom, washing your face, washing your hands, whatever it is. So the avoidance is about the demand that's put on them. That's important to remember. It's not about the activity itself that makes it aversive. So if you're a kiddo, I remember me, I always had to have a certain kind of socks with a certain, like I couldn't have certain sort of seams in the toes, for example. That could be a problem if I didn't have the right kind of socks. So it's not a PDA that I wasn't, you know, that I was so avoidant of socks. It was just a sensory thing, right? So it's not about the activity itself that makes it aversive. It's about the demand being told to go put on your socks. So that's so important to remember because PDA is just, it's not related to one specific thing. Okay. It's a, it's usually a, across a range of different things. But it's not about the things they need to do. It's about the demands that are placed on the child. And so I just really want to stress that because I think that that is a piece of misinformation or um, maybe a point of confusion for a lot of people. Those demands, though, can change as kids get older. We might not even see this until they're teenagers, and now they're expected to do so many more things and become more independent that the demands, the perceived demands, are just so overwhelming for them that they just can't manage it. And it's not even the demand. Sometimes it's just the expectation, right? So this focus on the demand avoidance is really important because in our neurotypical kids, they might avoid things that we ask of them, but the function of that avoidance is to get out of the task we've asked them to do. I don't want to brush my teeth. I don't want to pick up poo, right? They want to avoid that task. That's the reward, not needing to pick up poo. If I fight long enough and hard enough, my parents will just throw their hands up in the air, fine, and then I don't have to do it. That's the reward, right? I put up that fight. We're wasting the morning away. I see this all the time too. We waste the morning away and I get to go to school because now mom and dad, they have, they have to drop me off. They have to get to work, right? So not miss their meeting. And I never had to do my chores in the morning or I didn't have to brush my hair because they're like, whatever, just get in the car, right? With PDA though, it's not about getting out of complying. It's not about getting out of the task, no matter what the demand was. It's about getting out of the demand, even if the demand was eat your ice cream for breakfast, 
So even if it was something that they would have loved to have done, as soon as we put the demand on it, for some reason, their brain has associated the demand as a threat. Ding, 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 right? So now our brain is putting up all of those defense mechanisms. And so um, they they just want to fight or run away, right? And if they're successful in avoiding that threat with whatever behaviors they're going to engage in, then those behaviors are going to be reinforced. And and then the demands seem even more threatening. So the demands themselves, I mean, it could be a verbal instruction like, hey, kiddo, go eat your breakfast. But it could be a visual one. Like if you're giving your kiddo a checklist, that checklist could be really overwhelming for them because now they've got all of these demands, right? Um, Now, it's interesting because the demands could be external from others. So parents telling me, teachers telling me what I need to do, but it could be internal things for them too. That's the shoulds. I should do this thing which then can trigger that anxiety response just as much as tell as someone else telling them, hey, kiddo, you got to go do this, right? So maybe in their head is like, I really want to say hi to Susie in the hallway, right? Those internal demands of I should go say hi, it just becomes so anxiety provoking. So internal demands could be something like that, but it could even be things like hunger and thirst, right? My body is demanding of me that I eat or drink, (gasps) that anxiety can kick in. And like I said, it could even be things that they absolutely love, like asking someone to go swimming or coming over and playing a video game. So we're seeing this avoidance. It's very extreme. It's not helpful for them. And they're actually sabotaging themselves, sabotaging things that they want to do. So we got to remember kids want to do good and they do good when they can do good, right? And if they're not able to do good, it's because something's getting in the way, right? Something else is going on. And these kiddos, we got to remember, they often, they want to comply. They want to eat their ice cream for breakfast. They want to get dressed. They want to go put their dish in the sink because they don't want to fight with their parents, right? They just want to be helpful. They'd rather do that than fight or run away, but they just can't get to it because their brain has triggered that fight flight response. And we know it's so powerful. That's always going to take over. And that response just takes over so easily. It becomes so automatic. So I think that that's, you know, really important for us to think about. And so how does it show up? Well, it manifests in so many different ways, though the reactions are extreme overreactions, right? They're so intense and so big, even if it's passive, it's still way bigger than we would expect for other kiddos developmentally, you know, at the same sort of level. Um, But when we have those externalizers, they're so intense and so big, parents often feel like they're prisoner, right? That they can't do anything. They can't say anything. They're walking on eggshells all the time. And they never know what is going to trigger this monster inside that's just waiting to lash out. And as they get older, they might be able to contain it a little bit better because their brain is developing, you know, they're developing more coping skills, but we're still seeing bigger reactions than what we'd expect for their developmental age. Um, But it could be a sudden emotional or behavioral outburst. It could be a big meltdown. We see a lot of mood swings all the time. Um, A lot of the emotional sorts of things can be very similar to a panic attack. 
We might see avoidance, refusing to follow through requests. Um, It could just be actively trying to distract themselves or other people or divert attention from the demands like, oh my gosh, squirrel, (laughs) right? Like, look at that. Um, It could be negotiating. They could become aggressive either verbally or physically. They could actually be running away, running up to their room, hiding, withdrawing. Some kiddos will engage in self-harm. They might not do anything aggressive, but we might see things even more extreme too, like selective mutism. I'm just going to not talk at all. I can't do anything. And it's not that they're choosing. They just literally, I cannot talk. And we see it it can be really frustrating for for parents and for teachers and, and people working with these kiddos because there can be a lot of inconsistencies from one day to the next, one minute to the next. Why could you put your socks on today and now all of a sudden you can't, right? Or maybe they're in the middle of something and they're doing good, they're doing good, and then just like a flip of a switch, all of a sudden they can't do it anymore, even though they're right in the middle of it already, So it can be really inconsistent. Um, I just want to go back to the distraction piece. I I forgot to mention, it's just so interesting because we see some kiddos develop sort of obsessive behaviors or interests, which, you know, often go hand in hand with autism as well. We see that, but they're doing it to avoid demands, right? So they might spend hours and hours and hours on a particular thing, which could be part of the autistic hyperfixation right? We see that with ADHD too. It's just procrastination where our priorities, we just kind of put something else in front of the thing that we're supposed to be doing. Um, But we do see that as part of the anxiety avoidance as well. But we also see obsessive behavior focused on people. It's not just interest. We might see that on people as well. I was actually just working with a teenager last year um, who had become obsessive about someone in their life in a very negative way. And it became disrupting because every single interaction, every single conversation involved that person and they would bring that person and all of their agitation and irritability and everything into the, into their um, conversations. And they were able to avoid a lot of things. People would just drop it, right? Because now this person is getting agitated, obsessed about, you know, this other person. Um, But we can see things like extreme clinginess or controlling behaviors as well. We can see the strict adherence to specific routines and freaking out if we're going to try to break that. Um, oftentimes they're using what we would consider social strategies to be able to avoid, to get out of things. If it's not the big emotional meltdown or behavioral reaction, it's a lot of social strategies. Um, sometimes it's an excuse. I love kiddos actually, but, um, one of my supervisees was working with a kiddo, um, and he was saying he was blind and he couldn't follow through with something. And I just, it cracks me up. I wish I worked with him because I love that kind of stuff, but it's so frustrating. I know if you're a teacher or a parent in that situation can be really problematic, but that's a great thing. Oh, I'm blind. I can't do it. So not over the top extreme, you know, behaviorally hitting and screaming or anything like that, but that's a social strategy. Um, But it could be more threatening, right? Like it could be more severe, like threatening others. Um, But we see oftentimes different strategies using being used depending on how anxious they're feeling. So if they're not feeling overly anxious, they might try to negotiate. They might try to procrastinate or be like, I'm blind. I can't do it. Um, sometimes they'll just retreat into an imaginary world, right? Um, siblings, I might see one trying to control 
their sibling, right? Or controlling somebody else. They're ordering them around too. Um, in play, I see that a lot. A lot of kids controlling what's happening. When those initial strategies, if they're not working, then they can escalate. And now we might see the big meltdowns or the aggression or everything else that we see. So sometimes we see that escalation cycle, which is really important to watch out for and understand because we can intervene the minute we see the trigger. If we can intervene right there with different strategies like mood induction or something like that, it can be really effective. Um, but sometimes it's not always that escalation either. Um like autism, a lot of people, especially as they get older, they might be able to mask or camouflage their difficulties to avoid those demands. So for example, they might try to imitate what, you know, others would typically do that typical behavior in the situation, um, pretend to avoid drawing attention to their difficulties, really trying to mask the challenges that they're, that they're having. So we can see this PDA showing up differently in different places. It's not to say that they're, they're not affected by demands from one place to the next, because then we start thinking, well, they're only doing it with parents. It must be a parenting thing. That's not true. Um, it can depend on so many things. Are they masking in other areas? Maybe they're not as anxious in one situation as an, or, or another. And that's where we see the inconsistencies. If they're not feeling as anxious, they might be able to cope a little bit better or their strategies aren't so severe, right? But so it could be how they're feeling. It could be how well they mask, you know, whatever it is. I find that more in my adults though. Um, maybe the PDA, it was always there. It just wasn't identified when they were kids. And so now they've just learned these strategies to cope with it, but it's still very effortful and burdensome as they get into the adult years. Um, unfortunately, because it is still relatively new, we really don't have research on adults, right? And so um, there's still so much more we need to know about what that looks like for adults. But we do see adults who find success when they can be self-directed in their work, right? I find a lot of neurodivergence do best anyways when they can own their own company, right? They can be their own boss. And that's certainly true for our PDAers as well. Um, but even a lot of our kiddos, they might look um, sociable, they might look engaging, not like your typical autistic kiddo, right, that typical sort of presentation. Um, and so they might have those skills to mask as well. A lot of them are very verbally competent. But a lot of times it's great rote skills. So they have a really basic understanding of vocabulary, but they don't really have more complex skills, like really understanding the situation or really processing, you know, what's happening or what's said to them or understanding all of those sort of social nuances that are just, you know, inherently embedded within our social interactions. They might not understand the social hierarchy either, right? A lot of these kiddos see themselves, I'm an adult and I'm going to treat you the same as me, right? And myself, I'm on equal footing as an adult. So you go to bed at 10, I get to go to bed at 10, whatever it is. And I see that quite a bit, actually. So whatever we see manifesting, it's just really important to understand what's happening underneath each of these reactions and having a really good understanding of what's going on for the kiddo specifically, that's going to be critical to intervene. And that's, you know, what I want to focus on. It's not about the label. It's just about what is this kid's needs? What are they? And how do we oh, support them? That's the most important thing. Um, because if we don't look at what's underlying and what their needs are, we can actually really overestimate what they can actually do. And we might chalk it up to them being defiant. 
which is never going to be helpful if we see a manipulative, defiant, oppositional kiddo. And I talk about that all the time. And that's especially true with our PDA kiddos, because, you know, even though they are autistic, they're on that profile, um, they usually present way better in social interactions, right? Even though it's superficial, they just present so much stronger. They might not have the same obvious routines or the repetitive behaviors that we would see in our autistic kiddos. So what I'm saying is they might look like they're functioning pretty well. So if we miss what's actually going on for them, it could be really problematic. Um, it can be really problematic too um, when we see differences in one situation and not another, or with one person and not another, one day and not another, right? And and just that inconsistency, which can make us believe, well, they are they must be manipulative because they can choose. They're actively choosing these behaviors and these situations, but it's just not true right? They just don't have control in that moment. And that's really important for us to think about so we can respond effectively. Often it is still hard for them, but maybe the environment's set up differently. Maybe people are using a different tone of voice or how they word things are different. In public, they might be able to hold it together enough to mask, but then we see it all melt out at home. And we see that with just a lot of kids anyways. Or at home, maybe parents have stopped putting demands on the kiddo, right? So they are really tiptoeing, but school, there's still so many demands there. So we might see it there. So those are all things that we want to really focus on. But because my comorbidity um, focus is really on comorbidities with anxiety, I just want to zoom in on that anxiety link here because that's going to be so essential. So these kiddos, they're experiencing really high intense anxiety, even just to the slightest demand of, hey, oh, hey, kiddo, it's cold outside. Go put your socks on, right? And so they feel threatened. That's the thing, demand, threat. And when we're threatened, we're going to do everything that we can to avoid that threat. And it gets to the point that they're feeling anxious before anyone even tells them to do anything. I just know mom's going to tell me to go eat my breakfast, <gasps> right? It's just the anticipation of the demands, just the anticipation of the expectations that they believe are coming, which can be problematic because when that fight flight response is triggered, right? Whatever that we're worried and we're feeling threatened, we see all of those physical symptoms, right? It still comes on. Our brain can't tell the difference, right? You've heard me talk about this. It can't tell the difference about someone's about to put a demand on me and I'm about to get eaten by a tiger, right? So we're going to have that increased heart rate, that sweating, the difficulty breathing, because all our body is going to kick into gear to manage that, that threat, right? So we have to run or, or fight, so these kiddos, they might experience general feelings of worry or apprehension, while others might experience more specific fears, right? And we know that they're especially prone to anxiety in social situations, likely because of all the differences that they have and the, you know, how their brain processes that social information um, and probably have a past history of challenges interacting with others. And so they might be hypervigilant and sensitive to any social cues that they can really easily misinterpret. So, you know, I'm not understanding your facial expressions right now. You kind of have a flat affect and I don't know what's happening with your body language. And so now I'm feeling more anxious, right? And I'm, I'm if, you know, in the PDA mind, they're always going to misunderstand those cues as threatening. So there's a misinterpretation there. 
Um, so we really need to think about those. So yes, I was saying it's kind of any demand, but sometimes in those social situations, it could just become so much more. Um, inflexibility, if you listen to my episodes on autism in the past couple of weeks, there's that in um, intolerance of uncertainty that's so intense. And that adds to the stress and anxiety. And actually, you know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. That anxiety only worsens the inflexibility of thinking. It worsens that intolerance of uncertainty too. So it's just a vicious cycle. And anything that we don't feel like we have control over, it's so anxiety provoking. That's really the basis of this PDA. And it makes it really hard for us to be able to handle anything with uncertainty, right? They can't adapt to new situations. They can't cope with changes in routines. And so that's going to be triggering that anxiety as well. And it's really about the demands in those situations. We always got to remember that because when I get to treatment next time, I'll be talking about actually mixing it up and being a little bit more spontaneous. But for right now, just remembering it's all about the demand. Now, when we look at anxiety, remember, it always wants certainty and certainty and control and comfort, all of those kinds of things. But control and certainty is extra important for these PDA kiddos. Right. And so they they're going to increase their need for control and increase their need for predictability, which just makes it even harder for them to adapt. Then if you've got a kiddo with sensory stimuli, right, if they've got any sensory processing challenges, which a lot of our neurodivergent kiddos do, um, if, if they're sensitive to it, if they have trouble processing it, it could be sounds, it could be textures, even just getting dressed in the morning, it can just be so much for them, so overwhelming for them. And it's just compounding that overwhelm and that stress, and they just simply can't regulate. Okay. And actually that reminds me too, of just um, something that I don't talk necessarily a lot about is that vestibular processing, right? That, that a lot of these kiddos have, I've talked about the interoceptive processing, which certainly they have understanding what is happening in my body and those, those sort of emotions and hunger and thirst. But, but with this piece, it's knowing where our body is in space. So if they have trouble with co coordination, you know, if they were had challenges learning how to ride a bike, learning to swim, catching a ball, like a baseball, those kinds of things, it can be really challenging. But if they're having problems with coordination and they're not really knowing where is my body at, at in relation to other things in my environment, of course, it can be really anxiety provoking if we're going to have to, mm, stand on one leg and try to put my other leg into the hole of the pants to put my pants on, for example, right? So there's lots of things that can just compound the problems. If it's just stress about putting on my pants and that's challenging, well, that's not PDA. We're going to address that separately, but this is just another piece that could be compounding everything. So Really, when we're looking at this, at the end of the day, these kiddos, they just have uber high levels of anxiety that directly affects their behavior. And the function of which is to avoid, so sort of obvious given the name, and avoid those demands. So it's really, really hard for them to follow through with anything that they perceive as too demanding, too overwhelming, or even what they think might be coming their way or what they think might be overwhelming for them, or expectations they think people might have for them. When that anxiety's fight-flight response is triggered, they're going to do whatever they can to avoid, right? They might actively refuse to participate in anything that involves unfamiliar people or environments or those demands that I expect might come. So when that anxiety kicks in, they can't regulate their emotions. 
their only way to cope is through running away could be passive, but, but a lot of times it's that huge emotional reactivity. These are the ones that are getting diagnosed anyways, right? They've got those huge emotional meltdowns, explosive behaviors. They're just so overwhelmed with the big feelings that come up, right? They can't get away from the overwhelming demands. And now I'm overwhelmed with all of the emotions. That's when they're going into the fight mode to try to get away, especially if they can't, you know, run away in the first place. And we know what the problem with avoidance is. If you've heard me talk before, I talk about it all the time where it becomes this vicious cycle because now I'm avoiding. And now every time I avoid, I'm missing out on that opportunity to learn, to grow, to become resilient, right? All of that stunted because they're not learning the skills to tolerate the emotions that come up, to regulate my emotions, to manage my behaviors, to cope with whatever the situation is and the demands that come with it. And so with avoidance, they're never learning, hey, I can actually manage this demand. I can figure it out. And so that anxiety is escalated because that belief of I can't handle it gets stronger because now they don't have any experience to be successful with the situation in the first place to prove it wrong, right? So I think that that's important to think about. Avoidance also limits opportunities for social interactions, for building social skills, and that can interfere with their learning, with their education. And in the future, yes, career-wise too, right? It's really interfering with their success across all contexts, including work as adults. And it can just make it really hard for them to form relationships, maintain relationships, right? And so we see that isolation, that loneliness, and we know loneliness, it's a killer for both our psychological and our physical well-being. And it's just, you know, worsening that anxiety. Now, unfortunately, those constant feelings of stress and anxiety, it really affects their mental health. It affects their well-being long-term, right, over time. And it can really lead to that depression, the low self-esteem, and really a reduced quality of life. And so we have to stop that avoidance cycle, which I know can be really challenging, especially when we see big behaviors. So... That's a little quick overview about PDA. I'm going to leave it there just because I know it's always so much to take in. Next week, I'm going to go into the treatment side of things with PDA, but it, just remembering it's about that excessive, extreme avoidance of demands. It's not about putting your socks on. It's not about doing the chores. It's not about transitioning off your screen to go to dinner. It's about the demand rather than the activity and, and a huge overreaction that we see or the passivity, right? Like the negotiating or forgetting or whatever that is. So interesting to start thinking about. Like I said, the diagnosis piece is beyond the scope of this webinar, but I am happy to consult. Or I'd love for you to join me in the autism training course that I've got coming up, um, just where we're looking at differential diagnosis. And I will be looking at the instruments that we could be using to look specifically at this PDA. So I'll leave it there for today. Go enjoy the rest of your day. Help those kiddos be bold and courageous. And I will see you next time.